knowable, something you can grasp and hold on to. And last week we read uh, the famous chapter of Mark chapter 15 about uh, the desertion of Jesus and the trial of Jesus and the painful mocking and, resur- uh, and death of Jesus on the cross. And as we left uh, last week, the fat lady had sung. That was all she wrote. There was nothing more. Jesus is laid in a tomb. A stone is rolled in front of it. And the stone is this great kind of symbol of everything ending. It is finished. It's done. But there is another chapter. Mark chapter 16 is where we're going to be today. And and really this chapter happens in three distinct moves. And so we're going to move through these things together. The the first move is in the first four verses. Go ahead and put those on the screen. You can follow along in your Bibles or uh, on the screen. Jesus is buried on, on a Friday. The stone is rolled in front. And on Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. And on the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. This is the ending. The the attitude of of this first move, even in chapter 16, the attitude is that everything is ended in tragedy. The one that they had put their hope in, the one they would put their trust in, is gone. He's dead. And uh, these, these diligent, faithful women are, are anxious to get to the tomb, not because they expect something miraculous to have happened, and it's tragic, but they go to the tomb because they have a duty to fulfill. They're anxious because his body was placed in the tomb without being anointed, without being prepared for, for burial. And so they, they rush to perform a duty. They rush to perform a sad task. Even in Mark chapter 16 points us that, that their attention is on the stone. They've got these spices. They've got the, these things to anoint Jesus' dead body. But how are they even going to do it? Because the stone is in the way. Who's going to roll the stone away for them? Their attention is on this stone like like the temple builders, they have forgotten the corner stone. We move into the next move, the second move, beginning in verse 5. Go ahead, Rob, put that on the screen. It says, when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in white, white robes sitting on the right side. And the women were, what's the word? Remember, that's a good description of Mark, shock and awe. But the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look, that's where they laid his body. Verse 7 says, now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see him there just as he told you before he died. And the woman fled the tomb, trembling and bewildered. And they said, what? Nothing to anyone because 
they were frightened. The women are shocked and stunned to see the stone rolled away, but also to see what the shepherds saw in the fields that night. On the night of his birth, the shepherds see an angel and the women see an angel in white, again with a pronouncement about Jesus. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. I'm reminded of the ancient hymn that, that we've sung again and again. Low in the grave he lay, waiting the coming day. Vainly they watch his bed. Vainly they seal the dead. Death cannot keep its prey. He tore the bars away. You remember this famous line? Up from the grave he arose. With a mighty trumpet o'er his foes, he rose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with the saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. The angel says, look, this is where they laid his body. Don't you remember you were here? That's, that's the point of the women in the scene. They were there at the cross. They were there at the burial. And now they're here again as witnesses of the resurrection but the angel gives them no time to process what he has just said. They don't get to sit and contemplate it. It's not a time to ask questions. Immediately, he gives them a new duty, a new task. They've showed up to anoint a dead body. And now the angel says, this task is the, sure, you were on this task, but this is the wrong task. I give you a new task. And the new task is to go and tell. And you have to love this part of the story. You have to love because these, the angel gives the women this task to go and tell two groups, a group of people and a specific person. And it's incredible that they're mentioned. He says, first, go and tell his disciples. This, declare, this declaration is, is so important. It reveals so much to us about the heart of God. Because when was the last time we saw the disciples? Where were they? We see only their backsides as they run in desertion. Remember at the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers and, and when Judas shows up, where did the disciples go? It says, they all fled him. Even this other character in his nightshirt, when his nightshirt is torn off of him, he flees naked. They all deserted him. But not Peter, right? Because Peter said, I will be with you even to the point of death. I will hold out when everyone else fails you. I will hold out. And his hubris catches up with him because in the very next few verses, who is it that denies Jesus? Not once, not twice, but how many times? And right here, the angel says, go and tell who? Those who have deserted him, those who have betrayed him, maybe those who have hurt him, even worse than nails on the cross, go and tell them that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. Remember, he said that. He said, I'll meet you in Galilee after this is done. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. Jesus offers, the, the, the angel speaking for Jesus offers this incredible declaration of, uh, of, of uh, a promise of restitution, a promise of forgiveness. Don't, don't you see that? It's, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how much you've hurt me I don't, or, or how many times you've abandoned me. I don't care that you've turned your back on me and ran away. 
But here is Jesus saying, man, I can't wait to meet you. He doesn't seem to hold that against us in, in any way. And, and I love that Mark is, you know, Mark is recording, we think, Peter's story. Peter is, is telling exactly what happened, and Mark is writing it down. And here we get this, these awesome words that no other gospel includes. Go and tell his disciples, including Peter, including Peter. Peter, who, who denied worse than anyone else. Man, how, how do you think those words... When the, the ladies actually do eventually tell, how do you think those words, including Peter, make sure and tell Peter too. Do you think he was struggling? Can you imagine that, that he was heartbroken over his desertion? We know he left weeping. You think he was in anguish? And yet God and Jesus has not forgotten about him. Maybe he was suffering the memory of his own disloyalty, but to him comes a special message. Jesus, more eager to comfort and forgive than to punish. And this pronouncement is full of, of Advent expe uh, expectancy. Advent means arrival, nine months pregnant, looking forward to something. And where is Jesus? He has gone ahead of you and you will see him there. And we are filled with reasons to wait and to watch and to hope. And in the light of this beautiful, exciting news from an angel, verse 8 in, in Mark chapter 16 hits us like a bombshell. Um, I have a, a, a friend, his name is Ryan. Ryan is a, a young adult. I grew up with him as a kid. He, uh, Ryan has Down syndrome, and, and like all Down syndrome kids, like he's the sweetest kid in the world, but he's about like this big, and he's so strong, he can break your back with like one finger. And um, I grew up with Ryan and his dad and his family, went to college with uh, his older brother. So Ryan has always been like a brother to me. And uh, we would go and play disc golf with his family. So disc golf, is, it's kind of like ball golf, but you play with frisbees and baskets. And uh, we would go and play disc golf with Ryan. And, and uh, um, playing disc golf with Ryan is, is an is a interesting experience. I was in a tournament one time. Actually, actually so they actually have tournaments for these things. I know it's super nerdy. Um, but I was in a tournament and when you're in a tournament, just like golf, I mean, every, every time you throw the disc, it counts as one stroke, basically. And so it's, it's super important. And everyone is, is laser focused. And I remembered I was, I was on this really important hole. And man, it was so important that I throw this frisbee just right. It had to land in a perfect place. If, it, if I get it wrong, I'm just, the, my whole tournament is blown. It's just, it's just over. And so I'm sweating and I'm focused. I know it's nerdy, but I am, man. I'm trying to get this, you know, I'm in this competitive moment. And, and I throw this disc, I throw this Frisbee, and it immediately bangs off a tree and flies deep into the woods. And I mean, I'm just crushed. I'm like, oh! And from behind me, I hear Ryan. And he, I know it's him because he has this distinctive voice. And what I hear after throwing this horrible, tragic, awful shot is, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> And that is exactly what happens in, when we read verse 8. 
the angel has given the women this awesome pronouncement, this awesome proclamation. Hey, Jesus is alive and he's waiting for you. Make sure and go tell people. And then verse 8, what do we read? The women fled from the tomb trembling and bewildered and they said nothing to anyone because they were frightened. Wah, wah, wah. Like what's, what's happening some scholarship says, well, they told the disciples, they just didn't tell anyone else. You know, like, they're trying to redeem. And we wonder, how is this, how is this possible? And to make things more difficult, um, the, the whole gospel of Mark ends right here. Uh, if you're reading in your text, you'll see a couple of breaks in your Bible this is one of those, uh, those difficult passages. It'll show up like this. There's, you may even see uh, an explanation in your Bible that says a shorter ending of Mark, a longer ending of Mark. Literally, um, the oldest and most accurate manuscripts that we have of Mark's gospel end with that first part of proclamation. The women fled the tomb, trembling and bewildered. And they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Literally, in the Greek, it is like the page is torn off and missing. It is uh, the oldest manuscripts end with the word because or the word for. It literally, Mark ends in the middle of a sentence about women not doing the one cool, awesome thing that they were commanded to do. It leaves us hanging in this most awful kind of, the most awful kind of way. Uh, there was a teenager in one of my youth groups for a while. Her name was Lindsay, and um, Lindsay was deep, deep, deep into the Twilight series of books. Ladies, do you remember these books? Guys, you don't have to worry about it. Um, but uh, she was, uh, this, so there's this series of books, these Twilight books, and I mean, she was absorbed deeply into this story. She had these books with her. She carried the books with her all the time. We saw her tucked into corners. It didn't matter what we were doing. She would, if she could get a page in or, or, or a few lines and she was reading it, that's all she wanted to talk about was Twilight stuff. And, and as the good, loving pastor when, uh, uh, that I am, there was a moment where I don't know if she went to the bathroom or something happened, but she set down her treasured Twilight book. And I got a hold of it. And I turned to the very last page and ripped it out. And closed the book and put it back where it was. And at the event we were at, I know, isn't it awesome? Um, I know, it's so mean. Um, at the event we were at, she was reading. She hadn't got to the end yet. And, and I remember talking to her about the book and how excited she was to get to the ending and finish, and she couldn't wait and all that kind of stuff. And as we drove away, I put up the last page in the window of our car. She saw it as we drove away. <laughs> I know, I'm so mean, but I thought it was awesome. Um, it left her hanging. And that's exactly what happens to us in Mark. We end with this, what? This can't be the end. I need to know what the ending is. And if you look, there's a couple of different endings included. There's a shorter ending of Mark and a longer ending of Mark. And, and I don't know how to go into all the scholarship and all the theology and all of that kind of stuff. But like I said, it, it, a couple of things are happening. 
the oldest and most accurate documents we have uh, end kind of in the middle of verse 8, right after the women are frightened, because for... And then we have some, some documents, some manuscripts that have a shorter ending and a longer ending. And, and the assumption of scholarship is that it's unlikely that Mark intentionally ended here, right? Something has happened. Either Mark didn't finish his gospel. Um, um, everything has been pointing to the resurrection appearance. And to end in, in the middle of verse 8, there's, no, there's not even a resurrection, Right? Uh, there's, there's no appearance of Jesus. So uh, it's unlikely that Mark just didn't finish, but, but something has happened over history through time. The ending has been lost. And people have felt that, that horrible pain that you and I are feeling or that Lindsay felt like, I need to know the ending. And we know that uh, others have, have tried to piece together an ending what happens from the middle of verse 8 through the end is uh, we know it is not Mark. We know Mark did not write it. We know that they were added sometime later. And I know it's, uh, maybe that, that messes with your whole idea of the inerrancy of Scripture and all that kind of stuff. But uh, we, we know it's not Mark. It's not, the, it's not the same language. It's not the same form. It's not the same grammar. It's not the same vocabulary. It's, it's as different as recognizing two different people's handwriting, Right? You, you, can, you can see that, especially in the Greek. And this apparent incompleteness prompted early Christians to add their own. Almost like a, there were these books that I read when I was a kid called Choose Your Own Adventure Books. Do you know these books? So you read to a point, and then almost like a, the quiz show we had, the freeze game we had, there are three options, and you can choose. And so, so Christians... in in conflict, in conflict with the incompleteness, have, have added their own ending. They just couldn't handle the open-endedness. They, they needed closure. And, and so what you see, some of it is found in other Gospels, but some of it is, is unique to Mark. It, it ends in this, this trying to, to finish the story. So let's read it together, and we'll talk about this kind of last move before we wrap up today. In uh, Mark chapter 16, we'll start in, in verse 8 again, and then we'll, we'll go through all of it together. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Then they briefly reported all of this to Peter and his companions. All right, so now they're trying to redeem them, right? Afterward, Jesus himself sent them out from east to west with the sacred and unfailing message of salvation that gives eternal life. Amen. So there's one ending. Do you see it? And then there's a longer ending beginning in verse 9. It says, after Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went to the disciples who were grieving and weeping and told them what had happened but when she told them that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, what are the next words? Wah, wah, wah. They didn't believe her. And afterward, he appeared in a different form to two of his followers who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. All right, so this is kind of the road to Emmaus we hear about in John. Rushed back to tell the others. But again, what does that say? 
No one believed them. Still later, he appeared. And we know that he appeared. We know that he appeared to the 12. We know he appeared to the women. We know that he appeared even later to 500. We know that this happened. He actually rose from the dead. Still later, he appeared to the 11 disciples as they were eating together. And he rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief. Remember that scene even with Thomas. Because they refused to believe those who had seen him after he had been raised from the dead. And then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name, and they will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety, and if they drink anything poisonous, it, will hurt, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick, and they will be healed. And when the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And the disciples went everywhere and preached. And the Lord worked through them, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. In the longer ending, we have um, two more moments of, of disbelief. Mary Magdalene goes and tells the disciples what she has seen and heard, but they can't believe her. In verse 13, there's an apparent story from Luke. Jesus appears to two of his followers on the walk to Emmaus, we think. And they rush back, but no one believes them. And I hear Ryan's voice behind me, right? Wah, wah, wah. And then Jesus appears to them. He addresses their stubborn unbelief. I don't know what he said. Guys, come on. <laughs> come on. And then he gives them, he gives the church, he gives us a job to do. Remember in Luke, um, the scene from the shepherds? The early part of Luke, you guys remember this scene? We had some shepherds up here on stage a second ago. Go ahead and throw that next passage up there. That night there were shepherds staying in the field nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. It's interesting that the end of Mark parallels the beginning of Luke. We are given this task, the same task that the women are given by the angel, a task to go and tell, a, a task to preach, to tell the story of the good news of Jesus to those who have never 
heard it. Remember what the angel said when they appeared. We have come to bring good news of great joy to all people. And then Jesus tells them after the resurrection, as he appears to them, he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. What I love about this scene is that the disbelief and the unbelief and the failings of the disciples and of Peter don't seem to have much effect on Jesus. You know, if I wanted someone to do a task, I'd probably choose someone who hadn't failed me, who hadn't betrayed me, who hadn't run away. I'd probably choose somebody who actually believed in me, but none of that seems to stop Jesus. The disciples are... Are, are flawed, sinful. They're, they're hard of hearing, hard of understanding. They're, they're hard of heart. And yet, this precious message about the resurrection of Jesus, hope for the world, good news that will bring great joy to everyone. The good news message for everyone is given to them. Does that seem peculiar? We who like the disciples are hard of hearing sometimes, aren't we? We're, we're, we have been disloyal. We've been hard of heart. And we, like the disciples, have been entrusted with this incredible saving message of Jesus Christ. Not because of something we've done or, or because of our own perfection of faith. We who have failed time and time again. We're the wah, wah, wah people, aren't we? Right? It is us Jesus, entrust with, with all of the goodness and all of the grace and all of the forgiveness of the story of his own resurrection. In one sense, in this unfinished story, Jesus puts the ball back into our court. He, he puts us to work. In, in, in some sense, we must decide how the story should end. Is the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of his birth, man, we're great at celebrating his birth, but the resurrection is a part of this too. Is the good news of the resurrection, did it end with you? Did it end abruptly at verse 8? Have you received this incredible message of the resurrection and the saving grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Have you received this, this, this task, this duty to go and tell? Has it ended with you? Or does the story continue? Empty womb, empty tomb, our task hasn't changed. 
we, like the angelic chorus singing over the shepherds, have good news to share. Now go and tell. Go and make disciples. I'm going to bet that there's a member of your family that needs to hear this good news. I'm going to bet there is um, friends or coworkers that desperately need the good news of Jesus Christ. Will the story end with you? Or will it continue? In just a moment, I'm going to dismiss you to a time of communion. And um, I pray for a, a brokenness of heart. I pray that in you, in your heart, there would, be, there would be some compulsion, some burning passion for those in our world who don't know Jesus. Franklin, Nashville, we're expanding at an incredible rate, right? What's the likelihood that there are people in your neighborhood, maybe new people that are moving in that desperately need the good and saving news of Jesus Christ? Do you have a burning passion for those who don't know Jesus? And if you don't, I'm, I'm praying today that the Holy Spirit would light something, ignite something in you. Because the angel is saying about a good news for everyone. And Jesus commanded us, commanded his disciples to share the good news with everyone. And that starts with us having a real concern for those around us, for those who don't know him. So as we take communion today, as we celebrate his birth, I also I, I put the ending of Mark on your shoulders. What will happen next? As you take this bread, which represents his body, and as you take this cup, which represents his blood poured out for you, will you be compelled to tell the story of his resurrection? We're great at telling the story of his birth. Will you tell the story of his rebirth? In just a moment, I'll say a prayer. If God's put it on your heart to respond, maybe you're ready to give your life to Christ. That's, that's what we want. Accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Man, receive this good news and be baptized. That's why we're here. We, we want that for each and every single one of you to move into this way very passionately. Believe that God has chosen you and has grace and mercy for you. And so after I pray, if God's put it on your heart to respond, man, we want to we receive you. If there's ways we can pray for you or serve you, or, or if you're here to be baptized, man, praise God for that. It's also a time for communion, for you to spend time with him but also hear in your, in your head and your ears his great commission for you, for your life. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. Man, we celebrate. We celebrate his birth. We are so excited for what it means. It is, 
It, it, was, it was worth an angel course. God, the picture in Scripture is that you couldn't even hold them back. They, they just couldn't wait to tell the world about the good news. And Father God, some of that inspiration, some of that uh, uh, enthusiasm that surrounded his birth, Father God, let us be filled with that as we share Christ with our friends and neighbors. Fill us with a deep, deep compulsion, a deeply, deep love, a deep, deep concern for those who don't know Christ. Father God, don't let this message of the, the birth and the death and the burial and the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. God, don't let this story end with us here today. Don't let it end as we walk out the doors. But Father God, let us be compelled like you compelled your first disciples to go and tell, to preach the good news to everyone. Father God, compel us to go into all of the world with the saving message of your son, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection. Father God, bless us as we enter into this time of communion and meditation on you. We love you, Father. And in your son, Jesus' name, everyone together says,